electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Frank, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. CPI, it did come in hotter than expected this morning. Stocks are lower as a result. Could the first rate cut not come quite as quickly as the market was hoping for? We'll talk about that, how to position from here, and we'll hear from the White House in a bit on their plans to tackle all of it. Plus, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong calls the Bitcoin ETF approval a great victory, but our analyst calls it a Pyrrhic one at best and says Coinbase is set for a big reality check. He joins us to make his case with the price of Bitcoin topping $49,000 today. And a rapid rundown with rapid ratings. The CEO joins us ahead with the names on his radar that could be headed for trouble and one that really impressed him. Before all that, though, let's start with today's markets. Dom Chu has the numbers. And weren't we briefly at highs, Dom? We were. And just to give you an idea, it's been a fairly wide range today for the S&P 500, which currently stands at 47.57. At the highs of the session, we were pushing 47.98 and down towards 47.39 at the lows of the session. So, again, off of the lows, but well off the highs that we saw after we tried to make a run above the 4,800 mark. So we're off one half of 1% so far today. A similar percentage decline for the Dow Industrials, down about 145 points, 37,549. And the NASDAQ Composite, underperforming a bit, down about two-thirds of 1%, 93 points to the downside, 14,876. One of the big focal points has been the mega cap technology, that so-called Magnificent 7 trade. Well, we have seen some pretty interesting swings. At one point today, Microsoft was actually more valuable than Apple, but even Microsoft had gains that have now turned into slight losses so far today. But it did hit a record high at one point today. NVIDIA shares still holding on to half percent gains. It is sitting at record highs today. Alphabet and Amazon, both stocks that are in that magnificent seven and both big drivers of the market, they both hit highs for at least the last 52 weeks. So we'll watch those. Alphabet currently down 1%. Amazon up one half of 1%. And then we got to check out what's happening right now with Bitcoin prices as well. As Kelly alluded to, we briefly topped that 49,000 mark on a lot of this optimism uh, about what's happening with exchange traded funds, that many of which have now begun trading today so far. Rather than show you all of them, because some of them are fairly small in nature, we will show you the Bitcoin price, which is still up about one and a quarter percent, 46,420. But Kelly, it will be very interesting over the coming days and weeks to just see what kind of dislocation from a net premium or discount to NAV many of these funds have with regard to Bitcoin prices and their holdings. It's something to watch for sure in the coming days. I'll send things back over to you. I totally agree. Fees, flows, all of it. Dom, thanks very much, Dom Chu. Today's hotter-than-expected inflation number spooking the markets a little bit. As some investors think any rate cuts from the Fed might be a little further down the road, Steve Leisman is here with more. How much should we make of this, Steve? Well, I think it's a good lesson, Kelly. The Fed has been trying to say for several weeks now that the inflation numbers are not going to be coming as expected. Now the data is backing them up. The question is whether the markets are indeed listening. The message from the data, I think, is this. Yes, inflation is probably still 
cooling, but no, it doesn't happen in a straight line. And you just can't price the imperfect to perfection. Here's the data, month on month, zero three, uh, for the headline number, that's up from zero one, pushing up the year over year to three four from three one. The core coming in unchanged, zero three. Base effects help it decline to 3.9%, but still sticky at levels the Fed is uncomfortable with. Couple surprises in there. Energy had been negative, now it's positive, with electricity up 1.3%. Used cars, all the other data we have show it should be negative. And there's that shelter component, just won't go down, even though the other data we have, if you're bullish on inflation, that's your ace in the hole right there. And airline fares also uh, reversing a series of declines up 1%. Trouble for the Fed is that inflation progress looks to have stalled, certainly on the headline, which you can see there, it's gone a bit sideways. That's your blue, blue line there. But also in the core, that's the orange line, where the downward slope is no longer as steep as it has been. Mike Faroli from JP Morgan writing, with all the key data now in hand, it's hard to see how the January FOMC meeting would result in guidance to ease at the subsequent meeting in March. But... The market still continues to price a 67% probability of a rate cut come March. Just unwilling to give up that ghost for the moment. It's down just from 71% before the numbers. The next great hope for the inflation dove comes tomorrow. Get the producer price index. It has been more muted. Suggested little price pressure from the wholesalers. That should help flatter the Fed's preferred indicator, the PCE price index. But Kelly, we got to wait till January 26th for that one. Hmm. All right. Uh, Steve, stay with us. If you will, busy, busy little while here. We've got a 30-year bond auction. Uh, Rick Santelli tracking that action at the CME. We've had some squishy auction results so far this year. Rick, how'd this one go? You know, it, it's squishy in an average sort of way. So this is a reopened 30. The original uh, issue was created in November. We've added to it now for the second time. 21 billion reopened 30-year bonds. The yield, 4.229. Pretty much right on top of the when issued market of 4.23%. And if you look at all the metrics, they're basically very close to 10 auction average. So close to 10 auction average, and it priced right where it's supposed to. There's your plus, I gave it a C plus. Charlie Plus, a little better than average, but as you pointed out, if we compare this to uh, some of the auctions in Europe or some of the uh, auctions specifically in the UK, Spain, uh, Europe in general, uh, we can't keep up with it. Their bid to covers are off the charts. The demand is soaring. Seems as though Europe is really convinced that, you know, probably they're in a recession. Germany is, and they're going to keep easing. Here, well, let's look at it this way. You see an intraday chart, yields move down a bit. They seem to agree with the C+. You look at a one-month chart. Well, one-month chart, Kelly, uh, we're at basically one-month highs. Should we close 30-year bonds here? But maybe the most interesting thing of all, I talked this morning at great length on the CPI about the expensive situation on the long end of the market. Well, look what's happening today. You have two-year note yields down about four basis points. You have the rest of the yields on the long end a little bit higher. We've seen steepening the yield curve, twos versus tens, under 30 base points. This is what all the traders were telling me mid-December, that the big trade is going to be watched long-dated treasury yields buck the trend of lower rates. And so far, that seems to be the case. 
Rick, I appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Let's talk about this a little bit more with our next guest, uh, one of whom sees a March rate cut in the cards, maybe both, uh, which could be significant for markets at, at any way. Let's bring in Guy Labah. He's chief fixed income strategist at Janie Montgomery Scott. And Michael Landsberg is CIO at Landsberg Bennett Private Wealth Management. Welcome to both of you. Guy, and, and again, we're seeing pushback from Fed officials like Mester even now. But where are you? You, you, you think March or no? I find it pretty unlikely. Uh, right. As uh, as Steve and as uh, as uh, Rick mentioned a moment ago, there's a pretty high probability of a March rate cut priced in. But I like to think about that probability more as a small probability of something large and somewhat random going wrong and a high probability of nothing happen happening. Uh, we've heard comments from several Fed officials over the course of the last week or two weeks highlighting the idea that it's just too soon to be confident uh, this time to uh, ease off their relatively restrictive level of interest rates. And frankly, at this point, you know, just about two months before the March meeting, we would already have to be paving the way uh, based on uh, the Fed's forward guidance approaches over the last I couple totally of years. I totally agree. And Gee, so I think it's unlikely. I also wonder if the more significant data point this morning wasn't, act, I mean, CPI, sure, but it was kind of, you know, a non-event, was actually jobless claims. They were still so strong. I mean, if the, if the Fed wants to push back on a cut, they only have to point to the still strong economy. If claims were already moving higher, I think the market would be very much pushing back against this. Yeah, which is fair. At the same time, you know, it's still a holiday period when it comes to the jobless data and those weekly numbers are pretty noisy. So I don't think we've got, uh, you know, Jay Powell and his colleagues staring at that data point come 830 every uh, every Thursday morning. At the same time, there is a lot of evidence that labor markets perhaps are, are uh, easing off the gas pedal a little bit, but are still relatively strong. You know, we're seeing decent job growth. There's no evidence of economic deterioration, certainly not any material. Michael, where are you? What, what should investors do? Do they, do they buy bonds here? Is this their last chance? Or are, are we going to be surprised by rates moving higher again in general? Kelly, I'm not sure rates really move higher. I've been in the camp that you're not going to see a rate cut uh, until probably the summer, unless something really, really bad happened. Um, the economy is not in that bad shape, and certainly labor indicates that it's not in that bad shape either. So I look at it as a scenario, yeah, I think you can extend your durations a bit here. I don't think it's in that you have to go run and do it today, but I think you're going to want to move some of that cash to slightly longer durations. I don't think rates go up a lot, but I also am I'm a believer that I don't think inflation drops a whole lot here either. And that's what I think keeps the Fed on the sidelines longer than, than a lot of the market expects. A lot of people are, are almost saying the opposite, Michael, where they say, well, you got to be careful going long duration now because we've got, you know, kind of the deficit debt situation to kind of still get through. And the short term looks more secure because we can kind of figure out the Fed's trajectory. Why not go with that consensus? Well, and I say lo I, I said longer duration, meaning, uh, yeah, everyone's in cash now or, or three month T-bills. Got it. I think you can go out three, four, five, six years. I don't necessarily know if I want to have a lot of money out at the end of the curve, like the TLT, something like that. But I think you could start to look at kind of where the ag is and start to move some of your money out there, um, given the fact that at some point rates do come down. But again, I don't think it happens right away because I think the Fed's going to be on, on hold. I think Powell's a student of history, remembers that the, uh, the Fed back in the 80s um, wasn't aggressive as enough as it needed to be on inflation. Then we had a big inflation problem after. So I think if anything, they're going to wait until they see some real data. Um, that inflation has been beaten and, and maybe there's some deterioration in the economy for a rationale to really cut rates. And Guy, meanwhile, you think March could be significant for quantitative easing uh, purposes. You think they're going to end the program that soon? Yeah, so I think it's certainly going to pave the uh, way to end the program as soon as March. 
Last weekend, Lori Logan, uh, head of the Dallas Fed and former head of the New York Open Markets Desk, talked about the level of banking reserves in the system uh, reaching or approaching or heading towards what the Fed calls the lowest comfortable level of reserves. And this isn't a big deal. It's not a big problem. However, as the Fed shrinks the balance sheet, among other things, banking reserves in the system decline. And at some point, the Fed is going to have to stop doing that in order to assure there's sufficient reserves. Our best guess, and it's frankly a very simplistic analysis because nobody knows with much confidence, our best guess is that the economy will hit the lowest comfortable level of reserves sometime between April and May of this year. Now, in March, if the Fed slows a pace of QT, they could make sure that staves off a little bit further and there's no short-term accidents in money markets. Mm -hmm. So that seems like an attractive thing for policymakers to do. It looks from the outside like they're easing, but in reality, it's just a technical adjustment. But more and more people, Michael, are saying, wouldn't it be convenient, you know, hey, we don't want a banking crisis, but also it would help us be able to still buy some treasuries and maybe keep that long end from spiking like we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think the market has wanted to see the Fed cut rates because they want that, that juice back. And you know, unlike Europe, which I think is definitely in a recession, we're kind of teetering. And so I, I think, again, the Fed's going to be more um, you know, slower. Obviously, uh, what Guy's talking about with uh, you know, the, the Treasury is a little bit different. They're going to do some different things because they've got a couple different arrows in their quiver. But I think when you, when you look at it, I think the Fed is itself on hold. Um, I think growth's going to be hard to find. Uh, and in the, the parts of the stock market that growth can be found, uh, you're going to have to pay for those. And, and there's some areas that I think are going to continue to do well. But growth is going to be harder and harder to find as we all slow uh, globally. All right, gentlemen, thank you. We appreciate it today. Michael Landsberg and Guy Labah. Let's get back to the CPI data, dive a little bit deeper into what they're telling us about the economy with Jared Bernstein, who is chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Our Steve Leisman is back with us as well. Jared, thanks for taking the time. Know you've been held up with the president. Anything you want to share from that discussion? No, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. And it, what would you like to share about the CPI report, the economy, inflation, should the Fed cut? Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, thank you. I and mean, I will tell you one thing we uh, talked about with the president was this uh, idea that you weren't going to get inflation down as much as uh, has occurred. You wouldn't get uh, as much disinflation as we've seen without considerably higher unemployment. As you and Steve well know, many economists were arguing that that uh, was, uh, uh, ha had to be the case, while in fact we've seen uh, uh, quite uh, persistent disinflation in CPI core headline, PCE, uh, very much so, uh, without giving up uh, really uh, much of anything on the unemployment rate. Now, look, from the president's perspective, he's happy to hear me talk about macroeconomics, but he really wants to know how is this sitting with families like the one he grew up in? So the, the, this, the, the important point, I think, uh, for him and for working American families is that this combination of lower inflation while maintaining tight job markets is delivering real wage gains. We've seen that persistently. It's been a trend, not a blip. We saw it in this morning's data yeah. with uh, real wages up uh, about a percent year over year, the, uh, higher than their pre-pandemic level. The challenge, Jared, actually seems to lie, and this is kind of fascinating because you could see maybe some political rhetoric about it. I don't know. Um, number one category for inflation over the past year, car insurance up 20%, transportation inflation up 10%, car repair inflation up 7%, rent homeowners still in there. Um, you know, are we going to see the, the president going after flow? 
Well, uh, he has been really emphatic that uh, the, the most important two words when it comes to our economic agenda as we head into 24, uh, lower costs. Certainly maintain the gains we've had, build on the progress, but continue to punch at some of those costs, some of which you mentioned, others of which have come down nicely. I mean, obviously, gas is critical, and, you know, gas was uh, north of $5 a gallon in June of 22. This morning, it was $3.08 a gallon, below $3 in 30 states. If you look at dairy, if you look at eggs, which, by the way, did tick up more avian flu in uh, in December, but they're down 25% over the past year. Uh, dairy's down, uh, milk, bread, uh, airfares, TVs, um, uh, used cars uh, over the last year, although they ticked up again uh, in December. So we need to continue putting downward pressure on costs, not just inflation, but costs. That also taps into his junk fee agenda. And also, look, if you're a corporation and your input costs are coming down because of the savings that we've seen, you need to pass those along to consumer. Uh, he'll continue to talk about that as well. Steve? But, Jared, you know the question I'm going to ask you, which is wouldn't the president help his own case, his own cause, help the cause of American families if there was some dialing back in spending from the fiscal side. Uh, I, I know you guys have an ambitious uh, agenda. It's an ambitious business agenda in terms of reshoring uh, some production here in the United States, especially high tech, um, but also in terms of workers' wages. Doesn't that create some of the inflationary pressure that we're concerned about and that you really uh, want to see uh, dissipate? Well, let me say two things about that. Uh, first of all, there is a very important double benefit uh, in the uh, space that you're talking about from lowering health care costs. This is, these, these are actions that this president has legislated. Lowering the cost of insulin, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, lowering the cost of health care coverage. You know, it's not an accident that something like 20 million people and counting uh, joined the exchanges this year, and that helps lower their insurance costs. And that is a plus for the budget in the sense you amended, uh, but it's also really important for family budgets. So both the fiscal budget and family budgets are helped when we lower health care costs. Now, look, what you're talking about is a little broader. And look, I think if you look at measures of fiscal impulse, look at the uh, Brookings measure, for example, fiscal impulse has been, you know, flat, negative. I don't think it's been uh, particularly strong. So uh, I do think that macroeconomically, at least, that's that's the key indicator there. Jared, where would we? Oh, Let go ahead, Steve. Wanna... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to see if I could have Jared put his economic hat on. Jared, when it comes to growth in this country and whether or not growth is inflationary, supply is the big worry by a lot of people have. Uh, Kelly and I talked about it yesterday. Do you think we will have the workers, right, when you look at what's happening with the unemployment rate, it has stayed low. There's not a lot of slack there. Will we have the workers to power growth in the years ahead? I'm optimistic about that. Uh, I'll say a bit more about it in a second. Uh, but uh, I think if you look at um, supply more broadly, and this takes us back to the inflation report this morning, I mean, look at core goods. Core goods have been tracking negative or about zero uh, for many months in a row. It's probably the most important factor putting disinflationary pressure on these indices. And we at CEA have done some very, you know, I think some pretty, pretty good econometrics on this point. Uh, we find that 80% uh, of the disinflation relates to uh, supply disruption, uh, supply improvement, supply normalization, and that includes labor supply, either on its own or interacted with demand. So we've seen uh, real improvements in that space. Now, as far as uh, growth uh, in the future, 
Um, one of the things that uh, you're, you're kind of implicitly asking is, is there more capacity there for the labor force to, uh, right. to build? Uh, and, and there, I think, if you look at men in particular, um, there's been a long-term downward trajectory of uh, uh, labor force participation rates for prime age guys. And uh, I think it's uh, very much possible, especially if we're able to build out the manufacturing sector the way uh, this president has been successfully working on. I think that should help pull more, more uh, of those guys in in that regard. So hmm. I think there's more room to run there. Last question, Jared, does the president want the Fed to cut rates right now? Yeah, that is not anything we're going to get close to because we uh, uh, very deeply believe in, in, in Fed independence. It's not, you know, it's not something that we're saying, uh, you know, to be strategically clever or anything like that. Uh, we come from a perspective that looks at the history of countries where the the, the, the uh, independence of the central bank has been compromised, and those economies have been brought to their knees time and time again. So in great distinction from our predecessor in the White House, we uh, deeply respect Fed independence. Well, by, to give uh, the former president, sure. you know, he did call for rate cuts before the Fed actually did them. I guess to put it differently, does this White House economic team think that we should be having rate cuts right now? Yeah, that's not putting it very differently. So <laughs> uh, we're just not going to get into the Fed's knitting. Uh, look, we obviously track rates very closely. Mortgage rates, the fact that mortgage rates have come down about a point is very helpful. Uh, I'd like to see them come down further because I think there's a potential there to unlock some housing supply. So let's track that as time goes on. But when it comes to the Fed, we're just going to stay way out of their knitting. Jared, that's what's called uh, by Kelly taking one for the team when she asks the question <laughs> she knows you're not going to answer. Um, I, I guess well, I have just Kelly. one more uh, question. Uh, sorry, is, is, is there time for one more question? Go here? ahead, I just Steve. Ask. Yep. Um, yeah. Jared, when it comes to um, making a deal on the budget, are you optimistic here that we'll be able to uh, keep the government from being shut down? What is your latest read of what's happening right now in Congress and in terms of the back and forth with the administration? I'm optimistic. Uh, I don't want to get into ongoing negotiations. Let's uh, give them the space to, uh, that they need. Uh, I think when uh, you see uh, members agreeing on the top lines for the 12 appropriations bill, that takes the uh, probability of a shutdown uh, uh, way down. But it's not over till it's over. We're watching it very closely. We have very able negotiators who are uh, working really hard. They, I don't think they've had a weekend or a vacation uh, for a while. So uh, they're extremely dedicated to avoiding any kind of an own goal kick in this space. Uh, we have, as I think you, as I think we've discussed in this interview, uh, we have a, 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 some very nice underlying economic trends going, real wage gains, lower inflation, tight labor market. Even some of our consumer sentiment measures are showing uh, some improvement in December. Pretty strong. Good to see. Let's not kick the ball in our own goal at a time like this. Jared Bernstein, thank you for joining us. Steve, thank you so much as well. Our Steve Leisman, uh, senior economics correspondent. Coming up, are Bitcoin ETFs a crypto game changer or a painful reality check? That's what my next guest warns, saying the fundamentals for companies like Coinbase could suffer as a result. Plus, Red Sea tensions arising after the biggest attack on merchant vessels to date. Now, Maersk CEO says the disruption could hit global economic growth and might not be resolved for months. We'll look at the fallout with one shipping expert. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. After the S&P briefly traded above its record closing high, it's down four-tenths of a percent right now. Similar for the Nasdaq, pretty similar for the Dow, actually. It's down 100, so we're off session lows as well. And we're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The SEC's Bitcoin ETF approval pushing Bitcoin prices to their best week in more than a month. But is it good for trading platforms like Coinbase? Here's what CEO Brian Armstrong said on Squawk Box this morning. It finally happened. Uh, We had a number of ETFs approved today. And of course, it was a big day for Coinbase, too, because we were named as the custodian in 10 out of 13 of these applications. So I think this means that over time, we'll see new pools of capital come into Bitcoin But more importantly, um, we had a huge regulatory milestone that showed the legitimizing power of this industry. And it has been a big day for Coinbase. As you can see here, the shares are down about five and a half percent and in fact are trading well off their 52-week high that we saw just at the end of December. My next guest says the balloon has popped. Joining me now is Dan Dolive, uh, who's from Mizuho, I should say. Uh, You've been warning us about Coinbase for some time, Dan. Welcome. And what do you think is going on here? So this is the day. This is sort of the reality check that we've all been, you know, waiting for. Uh, If you actually look at the fundamentals, this is not a good thing for Coinbase. This is a bad thing for Coinbase, right? They were basically about to, you know, cannibalize their most profitable business. But he seems happy. He seems <laughs> like he's taking a victory lap. He says, we're going to be the custodian. I thought that was an interesting choice of words for a lot of these funds. So they are the custodian. And it's, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a very good point. He's right about this. But the fees that they get for AUM, so they get about five basis points, we estimate, to be the custodian. That's trading off 250 basis points. That's 2.5% for spot Bitcoin trading. So they're giving up a really profitable business to get into like a non-profitable business. And just to be clear, so for those people, there's plenty of them out there who have bought their Bitcoin on Coinbase in the past. They're basically charging 2.5% to do so. Yeah, they're trying to buy, to sell. And now there's an alternative. Now you can do it anywhere. You can do it somewhere else. What you say raises an important point, not to take this off, we'll bring it back to Coinbase, but a lot of people have said, because there's been the celebration for uh, those who are going to offer these products, obviously, that they're finally approved, but can they actually make money? You already have 11 different options to pick from. As you said, can you, do you think that they can offer low management fees for these ETFs or ETPs for something that Coinbase was charging 2.5% on transactions for previously? So I think that now the, 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 the massive price contraction or deflation in Bitcoin trading the, that the era of that the, that era has ushered today. I think that that's what's going to exactly end up happening. We've always been warning about price compression in crypto trading. 
today marks the day when this is really starting. And that's why the stock is trading down. Why is it so much more expensive, if I could put it that way, to trade Bitcoin than it is to trade other stocks, for instance? Uh, for on, on spot? On these exchanges, on spot, yes. On the spot? Yeah. Um, it's like, the, you know, it's because they can. Mm -hmm. Because they were the only name in town, right? So you have FTX, which doesn't exist anymore. You've got, you know, um, Binance, which, you know, is right. in trouble. So they're really the only, up until now, Coinbase was the only name in town, the only kind of legitimate way in America to trade Bitcoin. So they were able to like raise prices, which they did earlier last year, and they could. Going forward, they're not going to be able to do that. This is why this moment is so important because, and it's that's why it's not a good day for Coinbase because pricing is coming down. And we've talked about this before, and, and I've said, well, what about those, let's call them Bitcoin purists, or, or maybe a lot of the people who hold it now who might say, you know what, I'm just going to leave it on Coinbase. They're the trusted name. They're, it's, it gives me this feeling of self-custody, even if that's not maybe exactly what's going on. Um, you know, that's part of the appeal of Bitcoin is kind of its decentralized nature and, and not owning an ETF to own it by proxy. Can't Coinbase do okay if people just continue to hold it on their platform? And that's a great question. They only make money when you trade in and out. So if you just sit there and say, I'm not touching it, you know, I think it's a 10-year thing, they hold it for you, but they don't make money. They make money when there's volatility. And this is exactly what's going away starting today. And we've already seen the shares reset since the end of December. How much further downside do you think there could be? I have a $54 price target. So I see, is ample a good word? Mm -hmm. I see ample downside from here, a lot of downside. And would you extend that, even though they're probably the, the pure play, would you extend that to any other parts of the fintech world that have previously benefited from kind of the fees they can charge for crypto trading? Actually, for the, I see the opposite for Robinhood, for example. We talk a lot about Robinhood. So Robinhood can actually benefit from trading the ETF, right? So a lot of people are going to come to Robinhood to trade those ETF. So what's better to be the custodian or the guy that benefits from actually trading the ETF? That's why there's beneficiaries of that trend as well. It's a great point, Mike. A quick final question, then. If yeah, I'm course. Brian Armstrong, do I say, hey, we're going to allow ETF, crypto ETF trading on our platform too? They should. They should. <laughs> Dan, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank Dan Dolive from Mizuho. Meantime, a major player in the AI space is on Capitol Hill today. Emily Wilkins brings us those details. Emily? Hey, Kelly. So as we speak, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson and OpenAI Sam Altman are meeting together. This is obviously not the first time that the two have met. Sam Altman has been a pretty constant presence on Capitol Hill. And he told me today right before the meeting, I just caught up with him for a minute, and he said that he's here to answer some questions that Johnson and other lawmakers might have. And the big topic has been election integrity. Despite the fact that there's a lot of stuff that's stalled in Congress, the elections are coming. And there has been a lot of concerns for lawmakers as far as what role AI might play in spreading misinformation or disinformation. Now, I asked Altman if there was any specific bill that he was hoping that Congress would pass. He said he didn't have one in mind. And he and Johnson have a relationship that goes back a bit. Remember when Altman was here last May, he met with a lot of lawmakers, but it was at a dinner that Johnson hosted in his capacity then as vice chair for the Republican conference. So Johnson's been on AI. It's been something that is a priority for him. You haven't seen it too much his speakership just because there's so much else to get done. Uh, but for those who I've talked to, uh, the speaker and those close to him say that he is planning to do more on AI. And certainly the fact he's taking time out of this busy day to meet with Altman, I think really speaks to the potential priority we could see here. Real quickly, Emily, what were we to make of this meeting yesterday where, you know, they say there, there's already a revolt against uh, the new speaker? 
Things are getting very complicated here, Kelly. I mean, the fact that you saw what should be a very normal, very process-oriented piece of a, a vote go down is not a good sign for Johnson at all. And now he just met with some of his hardline members who say that they are now renegotiating and reopening that overall spending for the federal government. I mean, this was an agreement that Johnson struck with the Senate, with the White House, and to go back on it now really does not spell out good things for avoiding a partial shutdown next week. Well, we're still following this. It's still developing it. We have to see where it goes. Um, but I think right now there's there's a bit of heightened concern in the Capitol to think that this deal that was in place over the weekend now might no longer be a thing. All right, Emily, thank you very much. Our Emily Wilkins reporting. And a quick news alert to bring you. A well-known face here at CNBC, CalSTRS Chief Investment Officer Christopher Ailman has announced that he will be retiring. The board of CalSTRS says he will remain in his role through June as they begin a search for his successor. Again, he's been in that position for a long, long time and has been a frequent guest. Uh, Chris Ailman stepping down from CalSTRS. Coming up, Rapid Ratings rounded up some of the names with the riskiest financials in the market. And there's one global shipper that stands out above the rest. The name and how the crisis in the Red Sea could exacerbate its problems. That's ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The court is now on lunch break in those closing arguments in the Trump civil fraud case in New York. Uh, But right before the break, the former president was given five minutes to speak and went after the judge directly, saying, quote, you can't listen for more than one minute. This prompted the judge to ask Trump's lawyer to, quote, control your client. Trump said that he did nothing wrong before ultimately being cut off by the judge Trump said that he should be paid back for everything he had gone through. This incident should not ever have happened and it cannot happen again, said the FAA this afternoon as it announced an investigation into Boeing after a door plug broke off that Alaska Airlines plane mid-flight last week. The agency said it was Boeing's responsibility to meet the high safety standards required of its manufacturing process. And Sam's Club will now use AI to check receipts at the exit instead of uh, those familiar employees uh, that it and uh, Costco have employed. The program will roll out nationwide, but it won't mean the greeters lose their jobs. Sam says they will instead be able to refocus their time on helping customers. Kelly, back to you. All right. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, my next guest has a front row seat to the crisis in the Red Sea. He works with more than half of the top 20 global retailers and says this disruption has the potential to be as challenging as the pandemic. We'll ask him why after the break.
Welcome back. Iran seizing an American oil tanker off the coast of Oman today, extending the Red Sea shipping disruptions beyond commercial cargo. And it's just the latest in a series of conflicts that have pushed up global shipping prices. They've nearly doubled to almost $3,100 since late November, according to UK-based Drury Shipping. And with no real end in sight to these conflicts, which could now stretch on longer than previously thought, my next guest thinks supply chain challenges will persist and is telling his clients to build up inventories in the U.S. and Europe where they can. For more, let's bring in John Jonathan Kohlhauer, he's Managing Director of Global Operations and Supply Chain Practice at UST. Jonathan, welcome. How bad is it? Well, I think, uh, I think you're right. It is, it is uh, uh, quite a bit of a situation. Part of it is because of the, the uncertainty. There, there are so many things that we don't know. You know, how long is this going to last? Um, you know, whether we're going to get any relief from the Panama Canal. So I think that it's just got lots of, lots of challenges to it. How realistic is it, though, to ask people to build up supplies here? Uh, a lot of this still affecting cargoes, for instance, going from Asia to where? Yeah, Asia to North America, Asia to Europe. Um, it's interesting because not long after the pandemic, when, when product became available again, we saw a real spike in inventories. Um, retail inventories were up about 28 uh, percent six months, you know, kind of after everything opened up. Um, so hopefully that's going to give retailers some relief. Uh, but quite frankly, they're they're looking for their summer peak season inventory to come in, um, and we just want to make sure that that you know that doesn't you know fall behind. Yeah, it seems like this could uh, get worse. At least oil prices have not spiked too terribly or anything like that. And I suppose after the pandemic, do you think in a way people go, well, if we made it through that, we can certainly make it through this. Yeah, I hope not. I hope that they take this quite seriously, and that's where I'm working with my my clients and the client teams, and I've asked all of them to evaluate all of their inventory positions to look at what needs to be expedited now, um, and then to really review the, those inventory calculations to reset those lead times. Because quite frankly, the lead times are gonna go from 30 days to North America to 45 days or more. And so that's gonna have a meaningful impact on their availability. And you're telling clients to build inventories by 20% in the U.S., 30% in Europe. And we've seen the, the kind of the bullwhip effect that can have. Not only is it going to raise prices, raise inventories now, but then at some point in the future, there will be a payback. True. And, and they have to make sure that they manage those inventories appropriately. Knowing what inventories to build and what not to build, I think, is part of that equation. Some things you can actually expedite. You may want to air freight some materials. Uh, some you, you just simply can't. And those are the inventories that we're most focused on. We uh, also have seen retailers like Ikea and Electrolux announcing product delivery delays already. What else should we anticipate? Well, I think anything that is being sourced from, the, from Asia, I think, even if it's not just consumer goods like apparel or footwear, I think that components are, are absolutely critical. When you're building a product and it relies on a component that's coming you know, out of Asia, um, that, that can be a constraint and a bottleneck on the whole production cycle. And that's pretty much everything. I mean, if for all the intent of uh, shifting the supply chain coming out of COVID, wouldn't you say we're still largely uh, reliant on it? I mean, I can even think of big name companies. Apple, for instance, we haven't, I, to my knowledge, heard anything on that front. Um, but we really should be hearing from pretty much everybody who has an Asia-based supply chain. It's true. And certainly we're seeing, we're seeing some movement. Um, around Southeast Asia with manufacturers and contract manufacturers, um, but it's slow. That takes time, and that's where we are spending quite a bit of our time with our, with our clients and understanding how do you build that resilience in your supply chain.
And I guess finally, how much worse could this get, given what has happened, as we said recently, and uh, the comments Maersk and others are making? Well, I, I think it, it has some potential to get worse. Um, not to you know think of the worst case scenario, but you know as you know governments add you know warships into the Red Sea, such as you know France announced this morning that they were adding you know ships to uh, escort cargo ships. The more traffic and the more congestion you get, the more chance you have of bumping into each other. So that's something that concerns me. All right, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us, putting some numbers to it, and giving us the seriousness of the situation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jonathan Kohlhauer. Coming up, this name bet big on EVs just two years ago, and today they're making a big U-turn from that strategy. The name and what's behind the decision next. Plus, Boeing shares are down 15% since December. The company has lost more than $100 billion of market cap since 2019, and those aren't the only red flags our guest sees. What he is watching that doesn't bode well for the plane maker, we're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow is down 106, which is the mirror image of its highs today. We were up 106 when the S&P briefly retook uh, its record high. The Nasdaq, everybody pretty much down about a third of a percent right now. Hertz was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The company saying it will sell 20,000 EVs from its U.S. fleet and replace them with gas-powered vehicles. They're blaming weak demand and higher expenses related to collision and damage for EVs. Hertz shares are down around 4% today. Remember, they had targeted for 25% of their fleet to be electric by the end of this year and made a big, splashy deal with Tesla featuring that memorable Tom Brady ad just two years ago. Tesla, for its part, down a little bit less than 3% today. Elsewhere, Staples are off to a rough start to the year. General Mills and Kelanova, both on pace for their seventh straight day of losses. General Mills is coming off its worst year already since 2018, while Kelanova posted its worst annual loss in 15 years. And yet the red continues, uh, perhaps to some extent, as upward pressure on rates here remains. Coming up, a rapid rundown with the rapid rating CEO. From aerospace to shipping to retail, he's crunched the numbers and brings the names that are in poor financial health, along with one he calls very impressive. You're looking at it. He joins us next. Welcome back. From trouble in the skies to the Red Sea, Rapid Ratings is taking a look at just how well the companies behind the headlines these days are actually faring. The firm's software gauges the financial health of suppliers, creditors, and customers to help indicate a company's future performance. They then assign a score on a scale of 1 to 100. 100 is little to no risk. Zero means very high risk. With that being said, let's bring in Rapid Ratings Executive Chairman James Gellard. It's great to have you back. Welcome. It's good to be back with you. We're going to start with the big story of kind of the month, the year so far, which is Boeing. And what's interesting to me is not to ask about Boeing, you know, proactively now after the challenges they face from the, this aircraft going back to Friday. And now the FAA is investigating. But you guys had actually spotted some issues beforehand. What do you see going on here? Well, our ratings, the financial health rating, is an indicator of default risk over the 12-month period. But our core health score, which looks out two to three years, is evaluating how efficiently a company is run and how well it's positioned to withstand shocks. And if you look at those two things together, it's a dynamic that doesn't paint a pretty good picture for Boeing. They've been declining in ratings since 2019. Which and was when the stock price and the market cap peaked, by the way. Exactly. And they currently have a financial health rating of 35 with a core health score of 18. 
Now, to put that in perspective, over the last 20 years, over 90% of companies that have failed have been at 40 and below. Wow. Now, that isn't saying Boeing is about to fail. And certainly, if a company is going to get government support or is going it to... It seems unimaginable we'd even be does. talking about any kind of default risk here. It, it does, particularly in this market environment where it was just a few years ago that they came to market and raised $25 billion in one shot. Wow. So a lot of the Boeing story is the same story that we see throughout the market for public and private companies, that companies have been able to sustain themselves with relatively easy and very cheap access to capital mm. up until now. And Boeing is a great example of a company that has been able to sustain itself, though. And by the way, I mentioned the FAA is now investigating that incident. Boeing itself is out with a statement saying we will fully, uh, we will cooperate fully and transparently with the FAA and the NTSB on their investigations. Anything further you would add here? So what should investors do? A lot of people have said, okay, maybe now this is an opportunity to get long a stock that will have to be re repair itself over the next few years. I don't know if there's anything you'd add. Well, they probably would have said that in 2019. Or, they did. Or, you know, and so here we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a uh, it's a wait and see uh, unless you have an extremely long time horizon. All right. Well, uh, fair enough. Let's pivot. Talk some shipping now. We were just speaking about this uh, with our last guest about the conflict in the Red Sea, which actually has been sending some of the shipping names higher because the chart the rates they can charge right. are so much higher. There's one name in particular, though, that you've said could be a, a more exposed here. And tell us about that. Well, in general, you, the shipping companies, you're right, have done very well, and particularly post-COVID, where many of them improved in their ratings, uh, they, their, their resiliency to this kind of a, a dramatic problem has been really strong. So most of the shipping companies, the Maersks, uh, Costco's, and so forth, are in the 90s. Zin is lower. Zin's in the 30s. And um, it's a combination of indebtedness, combination of uh, lack of uh, lack of profitability. And I look at the shipping industry and really what I see today isn't so much the problems with those entities. It's the problems with the entities they're serving because they are in the supply chain of so many companies that are going to be affected, not to mention global growth, inflation, and a bunch of other things that could be affected negatively by this. So again, a bit of a warning sign in the pipeline here. I also want to mention uh, on the U.S. consumer front, you guys have done some good research lately, kind of looking through a lot of the middle market firms, trying to figure out what is going on with the health of the consumer or by proxy, the health of the economy. We're partnering with Marblegate on this in particular. What did you learn? I know uh, there's one name in particular you're quite bullish on. Just give us a sense of that and some of the other results you have. Well, the, 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 first of all, the, the Marble Gate work that we did, or they are a $3 billion investment manager focused on uh, restructurings in the middle market um, based in Greenwich. We've had a long-term relationship with them. And uh, they used our data, uh, anonymized all the private companies that we rate for the, our supply chain clients and public companies that we rate. And together we looked at middle market companies, which of course are mostly private. And then we compared those against the Russell 3000, $750 million is the, is the cutoff. And the things that we saw were a very stark difference in the way those companies have performed over the last few years. To wit, uh, smaller middle market and private companies are down on an operating profit basis by 20%, where public counterpart, the larger public counterparties are up 20%. Incredible. Uh, on a net profit basis, which of course is taking into account the funding costs that they're, that they're all having to incur, 
they're down 80% while publics are up 30%. Leverage is up 62% and, and the big companies, it's, uh, it's down by 14. So this is a picture of a sector that uh, private companies that are under a lot of duress uh, and and the ones benefiting, I'll just go ahead and put everyone's favorite, you know, Lululemon comes Lulu, out in our last five seconds here looking Lulu, pretty good. Lululemon rated in the 90s is doing really, really well. And it, I think the rate differential, again, highlights why we're seeing such struggles among some of these smaller players versus the big guys. Uh, Jim, thanks. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you, too. Appreciate your thanks, time. Kelly. James Gellert from Rapid Ratings. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Tyler's getting ready for Power Lunch. It's on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.